Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a number one draft choice that in his very first big league game caught a one-hitter by a future Hall of Famer he grew up rooting for. My first major league game, I was kind of awestruck. I'm catching Fergie Jenkins playing against the world champion, Abe. You're caught between trying to get a guy out and asking for an autograph. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball. From the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Jim Sunberg, an original member of the Texas Rangers Hall of Fame who scored the winning run in Game 6 of the 1985 World Series. Jim, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Well, John, it's a pleasure to be here with you and and just looking forward to our time. Jim's a veteran of 16 years in the big leagues. He's a three-time American League All-Star. He's the winner of six Gold Glove Awards, former Rangers broadcaster, and was in the inaugural class of the Texas Rangers Hall of Fame. And that's probably a good place to start because the inaugural class, that was that was an amazing experience. And it was also a very sentimental experience, wasn't it? Well, John, it was because of Johnny Oates. Uh, the Ranger manager had cancer and I think because of that, it was extremely emotional. And then a couple of pitchers that I had caught with the Rangers went in there, four of us, and uh, being Charlie Huff and, and Nolan Ryan. And so it was not only a emotional time, but it was a very uplifting Sunday for Ranger fans and, and for everybody that was involved in, in ceremony itself. When you look back on your playing career, 16 years in the big leagues, when you look back on your playing career, what stands out? Longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first word that comes to mind. It's the most important word. And the fact that I only spent one time on the table list, uh, the amount of games I caught, I caught 1,400 games in my first 10 years in Texas. I, I probably caught, I'm trying to think, I'm either first or second in terms of uh, amount of games caught over a 13-year period of time. Mm. And so I think kind of being a little bit of an iron man guy yeah. that weathered the heat and wasn't hurt but one time on the disabled list. And so, you know, 16 years, I think longevity is a key word. I've heard you use the quote, good things happen if you keep showing up. Where did you, where where did you learn your work ethic? You know, my dad uh, was a postman for 33 years. And when he retired, he had a year and a half of sick leave filled up and he walked around. And I remember when I was very young in Galesburg, Illinois, and there was a foot of snow on the ground. I remember my dad getting up and walking to work to be there, to, to show up. Uh, there were times that he was extremely sick and uh, at home, and we had all of our meals, uh, except for breakfast at times, unless school was in session, we had our all of our meals together. He, he had the mail route that had our house, and so we had breakfast before I went to school, before he went to work. We had lunch when he came through to deliver the mail, and then he was home for, for dinner time. And so we, we knew... When he was sick, we knew he wasn't feeling well, and yet he, he still went to work. And the fact that he had so many days of sick leave filled up was evident of his wanting to be a faithful, reliable employee. And I think that's kind of what I saw. I, I learned by observing, making observations of others, and that's my strongest suit in terms of the way I learn. And, and so I, I learned a lot from just how he persevered. Well, when I think of the Iron Man, I'm, I think of your record as, as catcher 10 years without ever going on the DL as a catcher in the, in right. te- in the Texas heat. That's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there was, a, I hate to say this, but there were times 
Well, there was a particular part of my body that had to be stitched up. That had to be, uh, what I want to say, worked on every night before the game. And finally, at the end of the homestand, I actually they, they finally put stitches in it. But I, there was a there was a period there where I was bleeding through in my uniform, and they they were wanting to keep me in the lineup. And so they decided to, to not stitch, and they decided to keep me available for games. And then finally, they realized at the end of the homestand. I think we did it nine or ten days in a row at the end of the homestand. They, they had to stitch me up, and so uh, by doing that, I had to, I ended up missing a couple games. But you know, it's kind of the, the the Wally Pip story that you don't get out of the line because if you do, somebody's going to take your job. Wally Pip and, and was it Lou Gehrig? Yeah. That uh, who who came in for Wally Pip one game, and then Wally Pip never saw another game. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we used to hear that story a lot. Uh, <laughs> you, you didn't want to hang out in the locker room, in the training room. You, you wanted to, to, to get out of the training room and make sure you're in the lineup. And so uh, there was a little bit of that intimidation. That's great. Well, you were a number, number one draft choice for the Rangers. And mm-hmm. then when you, when you came to the big leagues, tell me about that first season. I believe you played for someone who's rather infamous. Yeah, I played for Billy Martin brought me to the big leagues. In fact, I spent one year in the minor leagues at double A ball. Uh, had a very successful season. Actually, I broke a finger that year. I was out three and a half weeks. The only time I had some kind of a break happened in that uh, first year in pro ball and at Double A. And then Billy saw me play in instructional league that fall, the fall of '73. And evidently, as I found out later on, he had determined from that fall league that he, that I was going to be his catcher the next year in 1974. So Billy was uh, very fiery manager and and loved playing for billy the first year mm-hmm. the second year wasn't so much of a good thing but that first year everything went well for the rangers and and he stayed off the sauce mm-hmm. for the most part at least he wasn't bringing it into the dugout and 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 we we had a great year really turned it around from the 73 club the year with billy martin and i believe you finished in one of the top ranked for rookie of the year didn't you yeah, I, th- I think I finished second to my teammate, Mike Hargrove. Mike Hargrove. And Mike kind of passed me up the, the last month in numbers. And I was uh, I had never played in more than 100 games before in a season. And I was stretching stretching it, I think, to 130. Might have been 135 my first year. And I, I just started to really struggle offensively my, my last month of September. And uh, he passed me uh, in average and ended up winning the AL Rookie of the Year. We had a hard Mike. Uh, Mike won that. Uh, Billy Martin won Manager of the mm-hmm. Year. Uh, Ferguson Jenkins won a Comeback Player. Jeff Burrows won Ma- uh, MVP of the Year. And so it was a it was a huge turnaround. Went from I think last to uh, to second place to Oakland. Mm-hmm. Tell me about you caught nine Hall of Fame pitchers. What stands mm-hmm. out in your mind about? Uh, those pitchers that you caught? They were all exceptional in, uh, in terms of their uh, skill level, but they were all, you know, really winners. They, it was at a time where there was very few relief pitchers, and, you know, they wanted the ball. Uh, Bert Blylevin was another one. He and Nolan had the best curveball that I think that I've caught. Fergie had the, the best control. Greg Maddox and, and Fergie had just amazing kind of control. And you, if you look at the numbers, Historically, Greg and Fergie probably are two of the all-time control artists in baseball. When you look at the innings pitched to, to walks, and if they wanted to walk a guy, they generally walk a guy unintentionally, intentionally. Mm. 
And so if somebody, they didn't, they, they had a first base open and they wanted to go ahead and pitch to the next person behind them. And so they were strategic. They were all smart. They were all smart pitchers. They knew what they wanted to do. Uh, I learned a lot from all of them. Gaylord Perry was probably the toughest competitor. Mm. I learned to catch uh, a spitter really well. <laughs> I, I would give my I would give my gloves a, about a five thousand pitch lube job <laughs> after a few after a few games of catching Gaylord. Yeah. Um, Charlie Huff wasn't uh, one of the Hall of Famers, but he's of course being the Ranger Hall of Famer and, and having to catch a knuckleball was really the toughest thing I've had to do in baseball. Never yeah. really enjoyed that. You know, there's some uh, Goose Gossage uh, caught him in a in Chicago, but also caught him in an All Star game in San Diego in '78 when he was juiced up and all over the place. I mean, he was throwing oh the ball God. from uh, head high to somebody to down uh, below the knees on the opposite side of the plate, which is really hard to to cover that much territory with a guy that throws the ball close to 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, uh, but all of the, I'm, I'm missing some of the guys in there that, that I caught, but that's what sticks out in my, in my mind. You know, Don Sutton had, I caught him later on in his career, but he still had pretty decent stuff. Fergie was a seven-time 20-game winner. His first year that I caught him in 74, uh, my first year, rather, he was 25 and 12. I think he had 28 complete games, you know, 40 starts. So those things come to mind. And, of course, catching Nolan is one of the more fun things to do in baseball, one of the best pitchers of all time, mm. and uh, has probably the best fastball-curveball combination of anybody uh, of that time. When, when he was getting his pitches over, when he was throwing strikes, particularly with his curveball, there was no hitting him. I mm. mean, that was kind of how you gauged whether he was had a chance of throwing a no-hitter. I mean, he had 42, I believe, 42 two-hitters, Mm. or less, which is, uh, I think, as much phenomenal as a seven no-hitter. So I broadcasted his 300th win. Uh, I was a teammate with his 500 strikeout, broadcasted one of his no-hitters. And so it was, I mean, it was great. It's great to have been around a class of pitchers like that, and you know where the cream of the crop is, uh, where the top of, of the order is. What does it feel like when you're catching a major league pitcher of that level and he's just in a groove? Does it does it feel effortless or is it is it intimidating? Well, it, it can be intimidating. I mean, uh, I, I grew up watching Fergie Jenkins as a Cubs fan, going to Wrigley Field with my dad as a youngster, and, and now I'm catching him my first major league game wow. against the world champion Oakland A's, who would actually win the world championship in '74 again and uh, I think 74 would have been for the third time in a row so my first major league game I was kind of awestruck I'm catching Fergie Jenkins playing against a world champion aide you're caught between trying to get a guy out and ask him for an autograph I mean, that's how fresh <laughs> that's how fresh you are off of, of being a fan and now you're a player and you're you're in the game and and you, these guys are coming to the plate and you're going like oh my gosh I have never seen a guy up this close before yeah. that's amazing and so through the first three years i think it's kind of an indoctrination in terms of visiting the different cities and kind of getting used to the grind and the travel and and getting used to new stadiums i mean going to yankee stadium for the first time oh my gosh walking into that i was a huge yankee fan growing up as a youngster and roger maris and mickey mantle and don kessinger and 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 all of those guys and so or Don Kessinger actually was with the Cubs and grew up with uh, Billy Williams and Ernie Banks watching those guys. And, and so when you go to play in these stadiums for the first time, you're, you're also kind of like, 
uh, strike. So it is a little intimidating, John, that, that you, you do that. Fergie was great. Fergie would give me a lot of credit for the game when, when it really wasn't necessary, when, when anybody could have caught Fergie and, and caught a good game. Dealer Perry, who came in my second year, uh, he was easily uh, easy to work with as well, and made it made it good for me. And you know, the thing about good pitchers is they didn't blame the they generally don't blame the catcher. There's a lot of third level, fourth level pitchers who are a little less talented that want to blame the catcher for putting certain fingers down. But that upper class that we just talked about, the Hall of Fame class, they take responsibility. And Gaylord and Fergie were, were a couple of guys that were easy for me to work with on the front end when, when I could have been awestruck. So many former players tell me about a moment in time. If you're a pitcher, you're staring, you're on the mound and you're staring at the batter and it's, you know, somebody like Willie Stargell stands up and these are kids, you know, when they first get to the big mm-hmm. leagues and there's this moment that it dawns on them that, my gosh, I'm a big leaguer. Did, was there that, that kind of moment for you? Well, I, I think so. I, I mean, that the very first game, I'm kind of pinching myself, and we won the game. Fergie won the game one to nothing on a one hitter. I caught a one hitter my first major league game. I had wow. a couple of hits throughout. Uh, I think Campaneros once or twice, and feeling numb. I mean, uh, it was to the point that I was uncomfortable because I had trouble feeling the ball. My adrenaline was pumping so much that the sensitivity in my fingertips was kind of off a little bit. I had I felt insecure about throwing the ball that night, but it all worked out. And as you you know, then get a few games down the road, you begin to feel pretty much part of a big leaguer. Mm. Uh, I think the general thought is, you know, the first year, gosh, if I can just stay here the first year and I get sent down, mm-hmm. that's a great thing. And then you get you're up the whole year, and then you go, you know, if I can stay four years. That's a minimum pension. Yeah. And if I can stay four years, you, you kind of have to be able to work things out and have figured things out in order to, p- to play four years because uh, that's the general uh, cutoff for major league players. So once you get past four years, you got a chance of making it a little bit longer. And then you, at that point, you settle in to actually being a player, a big league player. You mentioned Nolan Ryan earlier. You had a role, did you not, in Nolan Ryan's return to the Rangers in 2008? Yes. I was able to broker uh, Nolan with Tom Hicks back into the Ranger organization. Tom Hicks had moved Jeff Kogan from the Rangers over to the uh, Stars to be the president. And so we were going to work without a president. We are going to work from an executive kind of committee, which in terms of, of leadership that I've been around was it seemed kind of dangerous and for that. And, and then a thought came to mind and I, I definitely felt like I had a beat on the organization at the time. We had a credibility problem, a branding issue. And, I, and, and it came to mind that Nolan might be able to take care of several things. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had kind of a list of about 10 items that I thought the Rangers needed to be able to do. And, and as it turned out, I got Nolan brokered in. Tom was all behind it. Uh, we got uh, Nolan in as president, we were able to knock out about nine of those things. Mm. And when, at the end of all that, at the end of the six years that we were together in the front office, it, it was tough. We, we only had about six months of peace in the front office in which something wasn't trying to go behind the scene to disrupt it or trying to disrupt the, the, the plan. And so that was that was rather disturbing and, and kind of disappointing about being, I learned a little about being in corporate politics. Mm-hmm. At, uh, during that time, but he did a great job. Went to two World Series, almost won one. Mm-hmm. Should have won one. 
Yeah. And it ended up being, uh, I think, one of the best contributions I made to the Rangers, definitely off the field, besides the contributions uh, for the 11 and a half years I was on the field. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about those World Series. Let's talk about 2010 and 2011. Tell me what that was like for you as, as an alumni of the Rangers. And, they, they, you know, they finally made the postseason. And, and here they are with these two incredible series. You know, John, it was emotionally really uncomfortable. I, I uh, as a player, you, you learn to manage your emotions. And you try to put them on the shelf. At least I did. And it, never trying to, to get too emotional on the field. Because I did then. Tend to lose my focus and not be able to to concentrate well, and you know, it's something I learned while while playing the '85 World Series with the Kansas City Royals and winning that championship. And so now I'm I'm in the front office, and I'm we've got a team that's been put together uh, by John Daniels, and Nolan has been helpful in that process, and, and Nolan was doing a lot of interaction with pitchers behind the scenes, and and was doing a lot to push the organization toward winning instead of trying to develop. When he got there, the word developing and developing young players was kind of the motto. And then when he got in there, he said, well, we're going to win. So he was, you know, he was doing that. Actually, one of the, one of the things that I think about it is uh, I was the one that came up branding Texas Mm -hmm. when no one came in. So we went from a Rangers brand on the uniforms and on the uniforms and and in the merchandise shop, to Texas, and because Nolan represents Texas, uh, I had to take it to Nolan, and Nolan bought into it, and then he had to take it to the uh, Major League Baseball in order to get all of this stuff kind of changed. And so mm-hmm. we were able to get it to, to change to Texas, and we're, you know, I mean, basically there's two Texas teams, but we were the one that could bring Texas forward mm-hmm. as part of a branding piece. Coming up, all-star catcher Jim Sunberg who set the American League record for most games caught in a season, tells about one game in which he really was not in the mood to play. So this particular day, I was sitting on the bench, and I hadn't played in two weeks, and I didn't have the best attitude. And then it sounded like the manager mentioned my name. What turned out is the manager wanted me to pitch hit. After I got through all the grumbling, and I came up with a game plan, I stepped in, and the first pitch went over the fence. Oh! And, every, and the bases were loaded. <laughs> and I remember thinking, going around first base, that's the smartest manager I've ever seen in my life. You're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. messageonholdnow.com. And now back to my conversation with Texas Rangers Hall of Famer, Jim Sunberg. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Jim, when you think about all the players that you played with, who was the one who had the best season? you ever saw i did play with george brett during a stretch where he hit 400 for two months Mm -hmm. and you know when you think about a guy hitting 400 who's hitting third and fourth in the lineup you're talking about a guy that's getting up four to five times a night which means you know he gets up five times a night he's getting two he's getting two hits a night for two months and if he misses getting a hit one night the next night he gets four hits (laughs) and so that was a kind of the deal it was the most unbelievable kind of hitting. It was the year that, that with Kansas City, we went to the World Series. 
So the the greatest stretch that I saw was Josh Hamilton when I was not in uniform. In in uniform, I would have said George Brett's stretch was mm-hmm. was a phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Well, that '85 World Series, obviously, you you played a key role in that. That was my first World Series because I was living there at the time, and I was at Game Six. And Game Six is the game that you're very famous for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not many would remember me being famous for a sliding to my speed, <laughs> but uh, I, I was actually at second base uh, before the, the Dane Orge hit the base hit that drove in the tying and winning run. I was at second base wondering why is Dick Hauser not fit running for me, and so uh, I kept looking into the dugout and I thought, he's, "Is he going to pitch run? He's going to pitch run." I kept looking, and, he, and he's not really moving or doing anything. I said, "He's not going to pitch run for me." So you, you start analyzing the game, get a good lead. Get a good jump, read the ball off the bat well. If it's hit to the outfield, read it as quickly as you can so you can get a good jump. Cut third base as tight as you can and push off toward home. And then you respond to where the catcher's at. And so all of that was in play. And, and Dane Orge hits the ball to right field. Andy Van Slyke has got a gun. And it's on AstroTurf. So depending on how that hop is going to get to Van Slyke, it could be a bang-bang play. And so, sure enough, I got a great jump, got a good lead, uh, got a great jump, turned the base at third. And when I headed for home, Daryl Porter got too far out in front of home plate. So I just dove to the outside part of the plate as far as I could go and reached it with my left hand. And it wasn't, uh, it really wasn't even close. And then all bedlam broke loose. I mean, it, the place went nuts. And the bases are filled. Waiting in the wings is former Cardinal Dane Orge, ready to pinch it with the ball game on the line. One run is in to tie, and racing around from second is Sunberg. He's safe, and the Royals have done it. For the first time all year, the Cardinals have lost a ninth-inning lead. And with a clutch hit from Dane Orge, Kansas City's ninth-inning miracle has made Game 7 a reality. The show-me series will end in a one-game showdown. In 85, we were the first team to come from behind three games to one, not only in just the playoffs, but we did it in the World Series to uh, come from three games to one behind and then win. Did it against Toronto, and then all of a sudden, we win Game 6 that set up Game 7. Uh, and then the eventual blowout that we had in Game Seven to win the championship, and so it was bedlam. It was it was amazing uh, feat to be able to play Game Seven. Well, you're you're right in talking about the ALCS that year against the Blue Jays because I remember George Brett carried the team through that too. And then of course the World Series was so unique for the very reasons that you've mentioned: three games to one and and winning. And then you know obviously Game Six was the Don Dinkiger game. Game Game Seven mm-hmm. was the ugly game with Joaquin Andujar. So that that whole series had so much drama. It did, and you know besides having the slide in Game Six, I was a guy hitting when Andujar went crazy in in, in Game Seven with Don Deckinger behind the plate. And I didn't know when Anahar came off the mound, I didn't know if he was going to come after me or who he was actually coming after. And with little street fighting sense as I had, I, I didn't make eye contact with him. I knew if I made eye contact, he might come at me. So I looked down and kind of scratched the grass, the, the dirt. And when, and when I did, for a second or two, I looked up. He had peeled off of me. It was going after Deckinger. And so all that was happening when I was uh, standing at the plate 
And it's interesting because that particular day, uh, it was probably the most nervous that I've ever been in my major league career for a, a game. And, and for good reason. I mean, you've always thought about playing the seventh game of World Series. Here you are in the day of the, of the seventh game of the World Series. And six hours away, there, there's someone's going to be crowned a champion. Mm-hmm. And I told my wife, Janet, I said, you know, I think it's going to be a blowout this game. And, but I, I don't have a feel for which way it's going to be. And sure enough, we got into the first inning, and, and Brett Saberhagen was throwing the ball so well, so good. He was our ace that year that I came back and told Dick Hauser and uh, somebody else was sitting next to me. I said, if we score one run tonight, we'll win this game. That's how good he is. And so uh, I think we got a couple runs in the second. We added a few in the third, and then we blew it out in the fifth. And it was 11 to nothing in the fifth inning, and, and that's kind of the way it ended. But, you know, the most – fun four innings I ever played in my major league career were the last four innings of that World Series game. When you're up 11 to nothing, you know you're going to win the game. Mm-hmm. And you got your ace on the hill, and he, he's so determined. And he's not uh, He's not going to give up a run. It was just the, the most relaxing, fun four innings of baseball I ever played. I, I used to think of the, my Little League games back in Galesburg. I'm starting to run through my mind all the, all the years and all those special games that you that you were playing, and it's kind of how it's funny how my mind replayed some of those days. But uh, it was amazing to have that experience. Well, Jim, you you have been so involved in the community during your time in Texas, and you've the Rangers Annual Community Achievement Award is named for you. And so you've been yeah. you've been involved in youth sports, you've been involved in public speaking, and you have a new book out, The Legacy Playbook, 50 yeah. Days of Encouragement to Pass on What Matters Most. Talk a little bit about yeah. the book. Well, it's a combination of uh, a lot of stories, 50 stories about my career, both uh, on the field and off the field, and it, it talks about uh, what matters most. And so for me, what the book will do is it will uh, help move somebody through a way of, of determining what matters most to them in life. And so, you know, for me, I get to the end of the book and, and I write a purpose statement and, and it kind of has the, what matters most to me in that. And it says that I have concluded that all the accumulation of wealth, even if I could achieve it, is an insufficient reason for living. When I reach the end of my days, I must be able to look back on more than just gold gloves, all-star games, world championships, and records, nor of same of any lasting benefit. I will consider my earthly existence to have been wasted unless I recall loving family, a consistent investment in the lives of people, and an earnest attempt to serve the God who made me. And so it's done in a devotional format because my faith is important to me, and I wanted to do something that was a little bit different than just having baseball stories in there. I wanted to, to be able to cover issues. We lost a baby one year. There, there was a, I had to handle a, a few throughout the years a little bit of depression from a father that I really couldn't please. And in attempting to please him, I drove myself into the ground until, until I had nothing left in me and, and would, get, uh, would get depressed. And so I talk a little bit about the honesty of that and a bunch of other things, that, that matter, how passion matters to the person. And in each chapter, I try to take something and talk about what matters most to a person and take a topic and kind of work through that. But uh, I also offer, I'm a big music person, and so I've provided uh, kind of a place where if someone wants to do that, I've I've, I've kind of recommended a song, but they can, you know, kind of do whatever they want to do. And then there's, you know, there's questions at the end 
that people can kind of analyze and process. I talk about passion and leadership. I talk about, you know, keep showing up. We mentioned that, which was tied to uh, a story uh, in Chicago that happened. And as you, as you move through the book, it's just going to lead a person. There's kind of this general going deeper as the book goes on and becoming a little more authentic, a little uh, more vulnerable in the things that have happened. And with all the accolades, I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, my career kept me on my knees. And, you know, I really talk about that. They talk about how difficult it was. It was not uh, as easy as it looks like maybe from the outside. It's difficult to talk about family. And, you know, relationships are really uh, important. And when you, when you look at it, uh, life and as you move through it, relationships are, are huge. Those that are they're closest to you. And, and that's why my purpose statement has, you know, three different elements of that. And they all pertain to relationship. One is having a loving family. And, and it's, it's a long-term goal. And so some days where having a loving family seems like it's out of reach when your kids are young and things are, are there's a lot of stress and, and people are, are feeling it in the family. There's not necessarily do you feel like you're ever going to get to that point, but you always keep that goal in mind that you, you work through and you look for special times to do and to have family together. And we do, we go to the beach a lot. We, I used to take the kids on road trips. Their fond memories are going to the spring training and going on road trips with dad. And then a consistent investment in the lives of people. You know, they'll say that if you got people around, you got problems. And so and there are days that I'm not real easy to get along with. I, and, and so to, to have a long-term investment in the lives of people, uh, again, is a relationship issue. And the third relationship issue is an earnest attempt to serve the God who made me. And uh, there's a lot of wrestling that goes on in that relationship. Uh, but we have an amazing, loving, forgiving God and I accepted Christ into my life in 1977 after having gone to church my entire life. Mm. And so at the age of 26 I, is when I, I became a believer. And it, it happened at a time where I was just at the end of, of not knowing how to navigate a major league career. It was, it was just stressful. It was hard. It was difficult. And it's what uh, r- really kind of propelled me into a, a, a season of real blessing and favor. And a lot of things went right for quite a while then uh, and I think what broke that was then we lost a, a little girl and then you start to enter a season of uh, struggle and, and uh, learning and growing and, and all the, the good things that come out of having been put in fire and uh, you know I say that and it, when I think about it I have some land and, and just you know a couple of years ago we had a fire but the interesting thing is it's the most good where the fire was two years ago is the most green where mm-hmm. it is today. Yeah. And it's come back just with uh, amazing benefit. But anyway, the book uh, is something I've always wanted to do. Uh, I wrote an earlier book, How to Win a Sports Parenting. But this one is probably more geared toward the kind of book that I've always wanted to write, mm-hmm. which was, was about my faith and about uh, my career and trying to encourage people in a direction to determine what, what matters most to them. So, uh, and you can get it at jimsunberg.com. If you want an autographed copy, you can go to jimsunberg.com and put in the word backstop, B-A-C-K-S-T-O-P, just like a catcher backstop, and you can get a reduced price copy for that. So, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to mention that, John. Absolutely. Well, good things happen if you keep showing up. 
If you keep showing up, are you, are you hinting toward the Chicago story? <laughs> well, let's talk about the Chicago story because you you played for the you played for the Cubs, the team that you grew up rooting for. Tell me about playing with the Cubs. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had a year and a half with the Cubs, and it was the downside. Started the downside of my career when I was sitting on this this particular day. I was sitting on the bench, and I hadn't played in two weeks, and I didn't have the best attitude that there was. And I was in a deep conversation. I think there was a theological such a conversation I was having with one of my teammates. And to be honest with you, uh, the only thing I knew was we were playing the San Diego Padres. It was an afternoon game. We were kind of sitting there enjoying the game. And then it sounded like the manager mentioned my name. Well, what turned out is the manager wanted me to pitch hit. And through my head, all of this stuff is going, it was Gene Michaels. I go, the guy's an idiot. He doesn't know anything. If he knew anything, I'd be playing more. I, I haven't played in two weeks. How am I going to get a hit? I don't even know the direction of home plate. Mm. I don't even know where to go. And I was struggling with that kind of a mindset. And that, I felt like Gullen in Lord of the Rings, you know, the little ball-headed guy that mm-hmm. had the thing with Precious, the ring. Sure. He was going back and forth between good and evil. And I was sitting there just kind of hammering on the manager. Well, it turned out that I hadn't even brought my helmet and bat into the dugout, so I had to go up into the locker room and try to find it. I couldn't find it, so I grabbed something, went back into the dugout and into the on-deck circle, tried to put the helmet on. It didn't fit. The bat was too small. And again, I started to grumble, but, but what happened is, is after I got through all the grumbling and I came up with a game plan, I stepped in and the first pitch went over the fence oh. and, every, and the bases were loaded. <laughs> I remember thinking, going around first base, that's the smartest manager <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. How did he know that? I mean, after all of that, and I use it as kind of keep showing up. I mean, yeah. when, when God has gifted you and placed you in a place that there's a potential for good things to happen and not to give up. And if you're experiencing a difficult time, things are going to be okay. And those that persevere through that end up finding great reward. And so it, it was a struggle that day when I was asked to, to pitch it. I had no idea uh, what to do, what was going to happen. And then what ended up happening is the best thing happened. And uh, so I call it keep showing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Well, Jim Sunberg, this has been such a kick for me. I grew up in Texas and grew up a Rangers fan and obviously followed your career very closely. Thank you so much for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Sure, John. John, thank you. It's a privilege and pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. I'm John Frost, sharing stories from Life at the Ballpark.